you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, so welcome, everybody. My name's Micah, if we haven't met. Um, if, you, if you came in before I found the worship folders, then uh, you might not have gotten one. But if you did get one and you're new, we'd love to know you're here. Um, and uh, there are some offering bags and offering plates on the edge of the aisles here. If you find them near you, if you could pass them to the other ends. And then uh, those folks at the ends, you can hang on to them. We'll get to those in a moment. Uh, actually, you can bring them up at the end. Uh, we'll, we'll sing a few songs as we close. Um, happy Father's Day, and guess what showed up in my box? <laughs> yes! For those of you not in on this, I, I taught at Solstice like a month ago, and my Bible just like vanished out of thin air. I had it, and then I brought it out there, and then it was just gone. And uh, I looked in every seat in this room, uh, in the seat pockets, I looked in the lost and found. I dug in boxes in the back. I dug in boxes out there. Nowhere to be found. Some guy's sitting in church this morning, and he's like, who's this clown that wrote in, in this Bible? And then he turns to the front, and he's like, oh, that's Pastor Micah. <laughs> that's his Bible. So he returned it to me. So happy Father's Day to me. That's great. Uh, and to the rest of you, too, hopefully you've had a great Father's Day. If you happen to know the score of the U.S. Open, please don't tell me. I'm going to watch it when I get home. And I would hate for you to ruin it for me because I would be really mad at you. And I don't want to do that because it's church and we're supposed to love each other. So um, we are in week four of a series called Awaken. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about tonight because... Um, I've been doing some study, and if you don't have a Bible, you're going to want one. There's red ones in the seat pockets in front of you there. You're going to want to turn to Exodus chapter uh, 16 is where we're going to be. Exodus 16. Um, when I was in high school, high school, I didn't, uh, I grew up with four brothers, and so we, we didn't have tons of money. Uh, I grew up in the Midway in St. Paul, and uh, so when I turned 16, most people get their driver's license when you're 16 years old. But for me, um, I had to pay for my car. This is a newsflash to all you youngsters out there. You actually had to pay for your own car. And on top of that, if I had a car to drive, I had to pay for my own insurance. And on top of that, I had to put my own gas in the car. Can you believe that? My parents drove a hard bargain, man. That's tough, tough life. So I didn't get my driver's license until well after I was 18 years old. How you doing? Senior in high school, didn't have a driver's license. But once I finally got my driver's license, I got a 76 Volari. Anybody want to sing the song? There we go. You all, are, uh, you all were born before the, the year of 1970 that just sang that. Um, every time I told somebody who was older than me that I had a Volari, they would sing that song. And so finally I've YouTubed it and I'm, I'm all good now. Volari, uh, theme song for the... So I had a Volari and uh, I, I had car insurance for this Volari. Only liability, don't worry, it wasn't full coverage. And uh, it, was, it was like mustard yellow with the fake rag top, you know, the one that had like was peeling off from the years and years of sun that had, that had hit it. And uh, one particular month I was just... Uh, um, had no more money, and I still had to pay for my car insurance. And somehow, uh, uh, I had to figure out how in the world am I going to get this done because I had uh, I drove my brothers to golf practice, and you know the car was a big thing. And so I'm freaking out about how am I going to get my, enough money for my car insurance. And I'm I didn't I didn't make this known to a lot of people, but lo and behold, uh, I made it known to somebody and somebody and somebody who told somebody. And uh, I still to this day don't know who this was, but um, I 
get the mail one afternoon and I pull out an, uh, the mail and there's an envelope in the mailbox and it's addressed to me, just Micah with him. So I open it up and sure enough, wouldn't you know it, there's a check in there for the exact amount of my insurance uh, for that particular month. Pretty, uh, pretty awesome. Um, I was pretty pumped because I didn't have to get another job. Uh, there was another time when I was, in, uh, when I was younger uh, and my... Uh, Parents, I remember vividly evenings where they would sit at the table and try to figure out, you know, how are we going to pay the bills and how are we going to make all this stuff work and five loaves and two fishes, but never worked like it did in the Bible. Uh, but I remember one particular time when money was really tight and we didn't have a lot of food. And uh, uh, there was a knock on the front door and, uh, and one of us went out to the front door and uh, the persons or person or persons who had brought uh, boxes of food uh, like, you remember the old cub food boxes they used to have? Not the bags anymore, but like the boxes. There were probably like eight boxes of food on our front steps. Just to say, hey, we love you guys. Still, we don't know who it was. Um, but in those moments, I don't know if you've ever had moments like this in your life, where you have a need or, or you have something that, that is pressing in on you and somebody shows up or God shows up in the form of somebody else. Have you ever had an instance like that? Uh, I could go on and tell you all kinds of stories like that, but uh, I won't because we're going to get to Exodus chapter 16. Uh, We're in this week four of this series called Awaken, and so far we've talked about, we're really pressing into and exploring the nature of listening to God. What does it mean to follow God? What does it mean to to listen to and follow this God who says, follow me? Uh, And so we've talked about Moses. We talked about the excuses that he gave when God says, go to Egypt and get my people out. We've talked about uh, Numbers chapter 9, where this is the famous chapter where uh, the, 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 the cloud and the pillar of fire basically lead the Israelites, and so they camp, and they set out, and they camp, and they set out, and they just listen and follow this prompting, which shows up in the form of a cloud and, and the pillar of fire. And last week, we talked about the golden calf, where, of course, Moses goes up on the mountain and comes back down, and there's a golden calf, and uh, talked about the idea of, of idols and how oftentimes it's it's... Uh, a mistaken identity where the means become the end or uh, sometimes where we, we try to essentially put God on our own terms. And so tonight we're going to talk about this fascinating provision of manna and quail and water in chapter 17. We're going to spend most of our time in 16. But, um, and just as I learned about a God who provides when he showed up uh, and, and fed my family and when a check showed up in my mail and I've learned some of the less, those lessons and maybe you have as well. Uh, I think the, the, the children of Israel in this story are starting to learn the lesson of a God who provides. So let's go ahead and read this together. This is uh, chapter 16. So if you're, you're there, uh, it's a pretty long one. And we're going to read most of it. So if you can stand, why don't you stand with me? And let's go ahead and read this. This is from Exodus 16. It says this. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin. I don't think there's any connection there which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we had wanted, but you have brought us into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they're to prepare what what they bring in 
and that is to be twice as much as they gather on other days. And so Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, In the evening you will know it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that we should grumble that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning. Because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. And then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in a cloud. And then the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight, you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread, and then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening, quail came in and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded you. Each of you is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by an omer, he who gathered much did not have too much. And he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. And then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until the morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning. And it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them, and each morning everyone gathered as much as he needed. When the sun grew hot, it melted away, and on the sixth day they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be the day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake, boil what you want to boil, save whatever is left, and keep it until morning. And so they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is the sabbath to the lord you will not find any of it on the ground six days you are to gather but on the seventh day the sabbath there will not be any nevertheless some of the people went out on the seventh day and gathered it but they found none pray with me if you would god as we look into your word tonight uh, this story is so old and it is so ancient and so far from us Uh, And yet we believe that somehow you are uh, alive and well and present and continuing to show yourself to your church and to anyone who cares to to look for you. And so as we uh, open ourselves and our hearts to your word, I pray that you would become uh, very clear and real to us, that you would speak and that you would uh, challenge us to be the kinds of people that you are calling us to be in the world. Uh, We pray in your name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. You can have a seat if you would. So much to say about this story, right? There's a lot there. We could go in a hundred different directions, but for your sake and for mine, we're not. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to uh, focus in this teaching on a couple of observations, three of them to be particular, uh, mostly because uh, it f- gives me focus, and then also, it, hopefully, you'll be able to retain some of it. Did you guys know that the average person, when talking, you know, like listening to something can retain about three to four you know, major thoughts. That's probably why most sermons and teachings have three to four ideas. So that's what we're going to do tonight. And uh, we're going to start with this. Number one, in this story, if we're talking about following God, we have a group of people, the Israelites, the, the children of Israel, and they are out in the desert. They've been called out of Egypt and God says, follow me. And so in the midst of this, we find this story. Number one, Yahweh, this God that's revealed himself to the Israelites, I am, the, the four Hebrew letters, yod Hey vah uh, Yahweh is the God of the ordinary. So in the midst of this, 
this, this story that we just read. God is doing something absolutely massive, something cosmic, something global, something that is enormous. This God of creation who's revealed himself as Yahweh, I am, he's called this people, Israel, out of the world to be his own. So this is massive. This is huge, okay? And, and all of humanity and all of creation is, 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 is hopefully or should have been, uh, if the plan had gone as it was supposed to, reunited with its creator through this people group, and of course we know it as Israel. And in the midst of this massive global thing, in the midst of parting the Red Sea, and in the midst of plagues that got them out of Egypt, we find this story where God, the God of creation, the God of this massive idea, finds uh, the, the Israelites find themselves being encountered by this God in very ordinary, practical ways. Everyday, ordinary ways. And it's bread and water. In your hand, you have a piece of bread, or at least you should have, unless you've eaten it. And, and in which case, you, if you really want to, you could go get more. But you should have a piece of bread in your hand. Just hold it. Just hold it in your hand, if you would. Bread, of course, is made from three of the most basic elements that we know uh, on the planet. Flour, water, and yeast, right? And this one has some peppercorn in it because it's a peppercorn baguette. Um, But for the most part, (laughs) I was standing in line, I'm like, oh, that looks good, I'll buy that. So most bread is just flour, water, yeast. It's basic elements, uh, and and therefore it's become become a symbol of our most basic needs, right? Man cannot live on bread alone, Jesus says when he's tempted by Satan. And Jesus in the prayer... uh, uh, in, in, the, in the Lord's Prayer says, give us our day, our daily bread, which, by the way, is actually mistranslated. And it should say, give us our coming day's bread, which has all kinds of different implications that we might get to at some point, but probably not tonight. It's really, really fascinating, actually. But bread is, is a symbol of our most basic daily needs. It's flour, water, and yeast. And it's here that the God of the world, the God of the universe, the God of creation meets the Israelites. And it's here that he shows himself faithful and trustworthy. Why is this significant? Why is it significant that God shows up and meets the Israelites in the midst of two very basic things, bread and water? In in chapter 17, I think it is, that's where Moses hits the rock and water comes out. So why is this significant that God shows up in this moment? Later on in the New Testament, of course, you know, Jesus takes two very basic common elements, bread and wine, and he invests them with all kinds of meaning. He takes two basic elements and and uses them to carry an idea that tells the story of the gospel. Why is this significant? Uh, The two most basic elements here, what's the deal with this? Is it possible that it's because we're sensationalists. That, that if it's not big, if it's, if it's you know, we lose sight of the forest amidst the trees. If it's not flashy, if it's not uh, loud and miraculous and spectacular and phenomenal and sensational, then we forget it or we don't look, we don't uh, pay attention to it. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you this. And hopefully we'll be able to zero in on what I'm trying to get at. How often do your daily physical struggles, your daily physical needs, your daily physical struggles um, bleed over into and and become a crisis of faith? How often do just daily basic things actually bleed over and they become a crisis of faith? They become uh, something that, that that gets lodged in your brain and it becomes this faith issue, this crisis, where if you can't reconcile it, 
maybe you could say it differently and ask this question. How much is your spiritual well-being, how much is the state of your soul connected to your daily material well-being? The physical things. How much is the state of your soul actually connected to how well you're doing physically and materially? How is it that we so quickly forget this God... If it's not flashy, if it's not sizzle, if it's not sensational, if it's not miraculous, faith, I think, is too often built up in these moments where God parts the Red Sea. When he shows up and there's eight boxes of food on your, on your, on your porch and you don't know where it came from. Uh, faith, we, we, we connect, you know, my faith grows when I see God do these kinds of things. And that's a dangerous place to be because that's actually not really faith. Because when... When, when the sensational happens and the miraculous happens, it's really easy to believe that God's in that. When the, when, the, when, the, when the waters of the Red Sea part, it's like, okay, that's probably not just some bizarre phenomenon that happened today while the Israelites are being you know, chased by the Egyptians. It's probably not random, right? Okay, God's in that, and so we believe. But that's a dangerous place to be, and often we find ourselves there. How important is it for us to connect the God or, or God to the ordinary blessings of food and water. When we learn to do this, I think we learn to experience God in the ordinary and in the everyday. And that's exactly where God is. Why does God show up and give them and meet them in the most basic of places? Because God is interested in not just being the God of the sensational and not just being the God of the amazing and miraculous, but the God who has invested himself in every square inch of creation, who's in the midst of a, of a beautiful smile and in the midst of a laugh and in the midst of dinner and in the midst of bread and water. And like the Israelites, if we can learn to see God in the midst of this, we can learn to say, yes, we now know Yahweh is the one who brought us out of Egypt. Yahweh is God indeed, and God's dramatic acts of creation are are one in the same or of one piece with his daily blessings. So observation number one, as we look at these group, this group of ragtag people coming out of Egypt as they're trying to learn how to follow God, is that God is the God of the ordinary. This God that reveals himself to us meets us in the most basic daily things, bread and water. And it's in those things that he blesses and says, I am God. And we are to recognize that. Secondly, I would say, Yahweh's concerned about daily bread. And this is getting a little bit into this whole, uh, you know, Matthew chapter 5, uh, Lord's Prayer thing. But let me ask you another question. Why is it that God is so concerned about the Israelites only gathering enough for one day? So a number of different times in, in the story, we hear God say, only gather enough for one day. One, one omer, I don't know what that is, but it was enough for one family. So if you have five people, gather enough manna, enough bread for one day only. Why is that so significant? Why is that so big? The obvious answer, of course, is so that they would learn to trust God. Because if, 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 if it's here today, we should get it, because what if it's not here tomorrow, right? That's the question that's going around in their minds. That's the question that's in our mind. If it's here now, let's get it while it's, while it's hot so that if it's gone tomorrow, then at least we've got a stockpile. So the lesson to be learned is if, if God says only gather enough for today, then he's going to provide enough for tomorrow. And so if I believe that to be true, then I'll only gather enough for today. That's the obvious answer. Let's dig a little deeper. Let's probe a little bit under the surface here. Um, 
as we read this passage, did anybody notice uh, a couple of words or a couple of phrases that were repeated over and over and over again? I kind of emphasized them a little bit, so you may have heard me do it. Did anybody recognize that? Two words I'm looking for that, that, that appear over and over, and, and often the same exact words, and then often it's a, it's a reference to or it's a different way of saying the same idea. Did anybody hear morning and evening? I, I, don't, I didn't count, but I would, I, would, I would say that there's probably eight to ten different times it says morning and evening. Does that ring a bell for anybody? Where do you hear that? There was morning and there was evening, and it was the first day. Right? That's creation. That's the Genesis account. Is it possible that a writer would have tapped into a well-known story of the past in order to connect something that was going on in the present. Is that possible? Absolutely it's possible, and it's all over the scriptures. So here you have a a story in the book of Exodus that's tapping into this idea of creation, morning and evening. And in the biblical story, I would argue that there are actually three different creation accounts. Now, before you string me out as a heretic and send me on my way packing, let me explain what I mean. There's three different creation accounts. The first one, of course, happens in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 where the God of creation speaks ex nihilo out of nothing and then the world is created. Humans, birds, fish, everything that's around us, the stars, the galaxies, the planet, everything, it's all created. Creation account number one. The second account of creation is actually Israel where God creates this people group because in the first creation account what you have is a world ordered the way God wants it to be ordered. Right? You have a world where the lion lays with the lamb, where there is peace, there's harmony, there's shalom throughout all of creation. That's how the Jews would talk about it. And so this means that there's enough. There, the, the, the idea, you guys have heard the word scarcity before. We were actually talking about it earlier uh, in the lobby. Where scarcity is not a problem because in the first creation there's enough to go around for everybody. And it's not that there isn't enough and so we have to gather and hoard it, but there's enough. There's harmony. Everything's working together the way it's supposed to be. It's ordered the way God wanted it to be ordered. Of course, Genesis 3 happens. Things get out of order and you have creation account number 2 where God creates this people group, the Israelites, and it's in and through this group of people who are supposed to model to the rest of the world what it looks like to live in shalom, peace, harmony, where the world is ordered as it should be. Now, most people connect Israel to what chapter in the Bible? The beginning of Israel. Any guesses? What chapter in the Bible are we looking for? Genesis chapter 12, right? Moses, or or God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to Bless you to be a blessing. I'm going to make you the father of a nation. You'll be, you know, your, your, your offspring will be like the sands on the seashore. But actually, if you talk to rabbis, the people who, who study the Torah a whole lot more than most evangelicals ever will, they would say that, that the, the, the creation of Israel actually happens at the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. Um, do you remember on, on about day three or four what God does with the water in the creation account? God parts, he he separates the water and the land from the water in the creation account. So the rabbis, when the Jews come out of Egypt and God is creating this people group, this is as if they're being birthed into the world as God's new creation, as God's new order of things, as the way in in which things should be through Israel. We're going to get back to that actually next week as we talk about the Red Sea. But 
And the third creation account of, uh, is, of course, in the New Testament, Acts chapter 2, with the church. And the church becomes the narrative or the lens or the vehicle through which God reorders the world. And, and hopefully, uh, as we live out these kingdom values, uh, that this is the way the world should actually work, where there's enough and there's love and mercy and compassion and grace and all the things that God intended for creation. So three different creation accounts. Now, what in the world does this have to do with the manna in Exodus chapter wherever we are, 16. Uh, Here's what I'm talking about. Israel's lack of adherence to gathering their daily bread. Okay, Israel's failure to just gather their daily bread not only shows their lack of faith that there will be enough tomorrow, but more importantly, it calls into question God's ordering of the world. It calls into question the way God says it should work. That you only need to gather enough for one day because there is enough if you manage it and steward it well. There's to be no hoarding. There's to be no gathering and building of bigger and bigger barns for fear of what we might eat tomorrow or that it might not be enough. It's not our ability to gather more manna than somebody else that's at issue here. And so therefore we're entitled to more. If I can gather more manna, then I'm entitled to more. If, because I worked harder than everybody else, then I get more manna. It becomes an issue of depending on God for one's daily needs. There's a guy who I'm reading uh, in, in, to do this study. His name is Nahum Sarna. Not a, not a white guy uh, or a, uh, an Anglo. Uh, he's Jewish and he says this. The increasing gap between the rich and the poor is due in part to the hoarding of manna and it witnesses to the failure to realize that all we have is due to God's goodness, not our ability to gather manna. What is at stake here, folks? What's at stake here for the Israelites is not just whether or not God's going to be faithful to provide, but what's at stake here is a direct affront on God's ordering of new creation and God, the God-Israel relationship. It's a blatant disregard for the will and desire and the best life possible that God says is here for the creatures to have. And at its core, it's actually disbelief that God the Creator knows best. And it's a statement, it's an assertion, when the Israelites go out and gather more manna, it's actually a a statement, an assertion, that we know best as creatures, not God. You have in your hand a piece of bread. This is a symbol of what our culture tells us is important. Like, this is the basic needs, and so we work to get these things. If I can, uh, and, and if you gather more, if you can work for more, if you can amass more, then value and meaning is, is given to you based on how much bread you have. And then you're better off than others. This is the way our world works. And I need to, I need to just remind you and tell you that this is a lie that actually accosts the very God who gives us life and ability as a gift. When God says, don't gather more than one day's worth of manna, the deeper issue at stake here is not just whether or not we believe God will provide, but whether or not we believe God's way is best, whether or not we believe that He's the Creator and we're the creatures, and that His way of ordering creation is actually the best way to do it. What is at stake here is the same thing that was at stake in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve said, you know what? I'm actually going to take that and eat. Because I think 
that God's holding out. A couple weeks ago, we talked about fear. It plays into this as well. What's at stake for the Israelites when God says don't gather more than one day's food is not just whether or not God will provide, but is, God's, is what God's saying actually true? Is God's ordering of creation actually the way it should be? Not only is God the God of the ordinary, but he's concerned about this idea of daily bread. And directly connected to this is the last thing I want to key in on tonight. And, and if you didn't believe me with this whole creation account thing, and this being a, uh, the Exodus story being a version of that, especially in the Jewish mindset. So you have this morning and evening thing in Exodus 16. And then, of course, you have it connected to what? The seventh day, which is called Sabbath, right? You have this whole story connected to this idea of Sabbath. And I want to just rock your boat here for a moment, if I could. Let me start by offering a, a shocking statement, to maybe to some of you, maybe not to all of you. I would submit to you tonight that Sabbath is not about worship, primarily. Sabbath is not about worship, and it's not actually about God. Sabbath is about rest, and it's about you, and it's about me. Let me explain what I mean. So often we connect, when we talk about Sabbath, we connect it to coming to church and worshiping. And when we do, I would submit to you that we actually miss the point of Sabbath, and in fact, we go as far as to, act, to get it going on the wrong track. Not only do we miss the point of Sabbath, but we start heading in a different direction than Sabbath was ever intended. By participating in Sabbath, by not gathering uh, enough for the seventh day, but saying we're going to gather two days and we're going to honor this day called the Sabbath, by participating in this day of the Sabbath, we declare that we, that I, am not in control of the world and that I do not hold things together. That it's not by my hands and my work and my effort or your hands and your work and your effort that things are sustained, but actually it's by the hand of God. By participating in Sabbath, we declare that we're not in control. We don't hold things together. Verse 27 says, Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day and found none. In other parts of Scripture, when we talk about Sabbath, the, re the repercussions for not obeying Sabbath is often death. Like, <laughs> death. Which seems a bit like, um, you know, uh, it seems a bit much. I mean, we're talking about one day of the week here, God. Seriously, death, that seems a bit overdramatic. But in reality, when you think about it, what's at stake here is God saying, this is how you are to live as creatures. Take six days and work. And take one day and do not work. Rest. And by not working, you declare with your body and your actions that you don't hold things together, that you don't sustain the world, that you don't... That creation does not depend on you, but actually it depends on God. And to live in a different way, to go against that, is actually death. Right? To go against the way that God intended you to live leads you down a fast path towards death. Ultimately, uh, if we live this way, and we believe that it's all up to me, that if ultimately my fate and my destiny is in my hands, that if I work hard enough and put my nose to the grindstone enough, I can be anything I want. I would say this leads to a way of life that's actually not life. It's, it's death. Because it's outside of what God intended for us as creatures. 
what's at stake here for the Israelites when they go out and they gather on the, on the seventh is, is, again, the same kinds of things that were at stake with manna. It's not just about trusting that God will provide and that the manna will not go bad. It's about trusting and declaring that ultimately Sabbath isn't about God and it's, it's not about our worship of God, but it's about coming to grips with who we are as humans. It's about coming to grips with our limitations and the fact that it's, we have a need for God to sustain us because I can't do it on my own. I can work as hard as I possibly want to. I can work until I'm blue in the face and at the end of the day, I don't hold it together. I don't sustain my own life. I don't sustain my family's life. It's God who does. And Sabbath, at the heart, at the core of Sabbath, is about taking one day to put down the bread and acknowledging that it's not my hard work, it's not my effort, it's not my ability, it's not my class or acumen, it's not my pedigree, my wealth, my riches, it's none of those things that sustain me, but it's the God of the universe universe that breathes life into me and gives life and the ability to even do anything. So here you have a group of people wandering out in the desert and a God who says, follow me. And maybe as we close tonight, I would just offer this. Uh, You have a piece of bread in your hand. And as we study this story, there are so many different things we could learn from it, but a couple that that I think are, are right at the top is that God is the God of the ordinary. He makes us in the midst of the most daily basic needs, bread, food, and water. Have you been able to find God in those moments? Or has your faith in God, is it dependent on the miraculous, the splendid? This, this God, who is the God of the ordinary, is also a God who's concerned about daily bread. And when we trust God and we follow God, we not only believe that he'll provide for us and that he'll be there for us, but that his, what he's actually setting us out on is the best possible life that's to be had in this world. Let me, let me just say this and I'm done. The Israelites set out from Egypt and they thought they were just getting out of slavery. They thought that they were just being led out of this horrible situation that they were a part of in Egypt. They were getting out, of, out from under Pharaoh. But actually, it was God through Israel reminding us, reminding creation how the world is to be ordered. And we learn these lessons through the fantastic and the ordinary in this story. And now... 2,000 some, 3,000 some years later, we think we might just be planting a church called Awaken. But I would submit that actually it's God through the church to be awakened or, or Berean or any whatever else, whatever other church you're talking about. It's God through the church reminding the world how things should be and how things will be in the end. So to follow God involves a lot of things. But maybe at its most basic, it's recognizing that he's the God of the ordinary, that he's the God of bread and water. He's the God of the most basic, mundane, ordinary moments of our life.
And he's the God who says, follow me. Because as you do, Israel, and now the church, as you do say yes to follow, what we participate in is God reminding the world of how things are to be ordered. How things should be. That no one should be left behind. That there actually is enough if we steward it and and manage it well. If we don't hoard and take more than we should. So the piece of bread in your hand, depending on where you're at, depending on where this hits you, could mean a number of different things. Uh, I'm going to leave you to decide whether or not you want to eat it, keep it, put it on your nightstand, (laughs) whatever it is. Eventually it will probably grow stale and then moldy, but it it won't have maggots tomorrow, I promise you. So... Let me pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up and we'll close it with a few songs. So pray with me if you would. God of heaven, uh, God of creation, uh, we, uh, we ask that tonight you would just make so clear to us that you are not only so far beyond our wildest imaginations, you are so much bigger than we could ever fathom, but you are also so intimate and so personal and so in the midst of the most daily basic things of the quenching of thirst and the satisfying of hunger, that you are a God who blesses, who gives as gift life and the ability to even to work and to experience life as we do. It's all gift. It's all a gift. And so God, tonight we recognize that. This bread that we hold in our hands is a gift of yours. And and the God of the universe, the God who spoke creation into being, we recognize that you're the same God who is in the midst of bread and water. And we worship you. We want to follow you. God, teach us what that looks like. Challenge us to to not hoard, to not take more than we should, but to take enough and to give the rest away as your church. Teach us what it means to be grateful, to be people of gratitude. Teach us what it means to be people who are, uh, who are generous and who, with open hands, give of ourselves and of our lives and, and of what we have. Teach us what it means to follow you, Jesus.